0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us again today for Back to the Bible Canada. Today, we continue our series, Life Lessons from David, the man who would be king. We examine what happens as David continues to flee for his life. So let's listen to Dr. Newfeld as he teaches from 1 Samuel, chapter 25.
1: Many Christians wonder how they should respond to evil. On the one hand, we know that Christ calls us to forgive our enemies, and we must do so. But some of us wonder whether those of us who have been wounded and hurt by others, whether forgiveness gives the impression that evil doesn't matter, that it is no more than a mere difference of opinion. You know, when nine people died in the mass killings in the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina— The surviving members of the church, reeling in shock, acted quickly to express to the shooter that they were offering him their forgiveness. But they were not saying that these killings didn't matter, nor that justice would not be done. The members of the church were calling for justice, but they were also offering forgiveness and expressing their desire that the shooter would repent from his evil. And how do we put this together? Both the call for forgiveness and the call for justice. How is it possible to do both? In Romans 1219 to 21, Paul gives us the answer. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I think Paul has explained well how to deal with evil. Step one, resolve in your heart. You will not lift up your hand to retaliate in kind to those who have done evil against you. Step number two, become confident that no one is getting away with anything. God will vindicate your cause if you're in the right. Wait for justice to be done, for even if your enemy escapes justice here on this earth, he will not escape it in the world to come there is a judge. Step number three, go one step beyond step number one. Not only don't avenge yourself, if your enemy is in need, bless him or her. Now, we're gonna come back to that. We've been studying the life of David, and today, as we come to 1 Samuel 25, we will see David in the way we have seen him before. In one moment, he seems to triumph in faith, and in the next moment, he seems to stumble badly. But he is growing in his faith. In the last chapter, when King Saul was in his hand, and when he had opportunity to strike him down, he refuses. He will not run ahead of God. He will not take vengeance into his own hands, but he will leave it to God. We're amazed at his growth in faith. But just when we think he has learned that, in the next instance, he almost fails entirely. Now, before we get into the details of this text, I want us to notice several things about David that the modern reader might find offensive. First, that David seems ready to murder a man and all his servants. And second, in the end of the chapter, David is now said to have three wives. What kind of a man is this? What moral basis is he operating from? Well, let's consider the times in which David lived. Warfare was a constant. Whether it was a Philistine invasion, an attack from a roaming nomad from the south, or the ancient enemies of Moab, Ammon, and Edom from the east, or an an army crossing over the Fertile Crescent and then sweeping in from the north, life was a constant fight for survival. And in order to survive, it was necessary for men to form alliances. And as we will see in the account we are about to read, David has been protecting not only Kila, that's a city which was almost destroyed by the Philistines, right within that region, but he has also been protecting wealthy men like Nabal, making sure that his animals and livestock are not raided by the people who are seeking his utter destruction. In return, the people receiving these benefits were called upon to respond in kind. If this alliance is broken, as when the men of Kilah encouraged Saul to kill David, or as when Nabal refused to pay up, then all that was left was invasion, brutality, and the cheapening of life. Warfare would be a constant all over again. Now, David had a right to be angry. Nabal, in his greed, will not respect his understood alliance with David. And to the issue that uh, what can justify David with three wives, well, I'm going to promise you that I'll touch on that at the end. But for now, let's recall the account of David and Nabal. Chapter 25 begins this way. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house in Ramah. Now the writer of this account lets us know that before David's crisis with Nabal, things have gotten worse for David. Whatever little restraint may have been exercised over Saul by Samuel, it's now entirely gone. David is now more vulnerable than ever. Our passage in 1 Samuel carries on. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. There was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and a 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give us whatever you have at your hand to your servants and to your son, David. We should notice several things. Nabal is of the Calebite clan, an esteemed family in Judah, and probably responsible for founding David's hometown of Bethlehem. So this is one of David's close kinsmen. As the account goes on, we find out that Nabal is completely aware that David is the son of Jesse, and so we have to assume that the two families, at the very least, were quite familiar with each other. Second, please also notice how treaty-like the speech of the young men who go on David's behalf sounds. Here's what we have been doing for you, and according to the custom of the day, this now is the time for you to step to the plate and perform your end of the deal. David leaves it entirely up to Nabal as to whether to be gracious or to do only what would be considered an obligation. But we also notice that David is dealing with a fool. He's harsh, he's badly behaved, he's greedy, he cares only for himself. In the speech he will give to insult David's men, he will repeatedly use the word I and mine over and over again. Shall I take my bread and my water and the meat I have killed, he says. He shows no sense of thankfulness for what others have done on his behalf. He's only aware of what he has done. Richard Phillips says that Nabal was to money what Saul was to power absolutely corrupt. And so David has just come from a test with Saul and amazingly spares Saul's life when he could have killed him, for vengeance belongs to the Lord. But now, after graciously going to this pompous fool who has no power, whose only concern is for himself, David has had enough. He's protected this man's investments for some time, and he has taken nothing such as others might have. Instead, he comes politely And if that were not enough, Nabal is not content to say no. He insults David. So many servants, he says, are breaking away from their masters these days. You are no more than a runaway slave. And the pressure on David was simply too much. He orders 400 of his men to strap on their swords. 200 will remain with the possessions. This will be war. It will be total warfare. Before that day ends, David, breathing out anger, is determined to kill Nabal and all his male servants as well. Now, we need to stop in the narrative and notice what's at stake here. A future king of Israel attacking his own people, that was what was at stake. Saul had done that when he killed the priest at Nob, and he was a madman. What kind of a king would David become? And it's at this point in the narrative that all the action shifts to one woman who has already been described as both beautiful and discerning. Married to an absolute fool, Abigail represents a woman who must have lived through a very difficult marriage. One can imagine her husband's drunken feasts in his house, as is described later in this chapter. One can imagine his fits of rage, and one can only wonder what this woman must have endured from his hands. And as one of Nabal's servants approaches her to tell her what Nabal has said to David's men, you might have thought that she, in her own anger regarding the past sins of her husband the fool, what she might have said. She might have sent her own message to David saying, this is the time to kill him. Indeed, this might have been Abigail's own way of getting out of her mess with her husband. Instead, and I suspect she's not acting for the sake of Nabal, but for the sake of her household, the servants, she goes into action. Verse 18 simply says, Abigail made haste. She gathered a very large supply for David and didn't just send it, but she herself went along with it. And as she went, as we will soon see, she was going to be acting as God's ambassador who had a very special role in preparing the next king of Israel. And when we come back, we're going to see that her actions in David's life helped to shape the kind of king that Israel would have.
0: God sees every day that is to come. More so, he steers time and space towards his purposes. Not only are our times in his hands, but his hand touches everything and everyone. That's the theme of Dr. John Neufeldt's new book. Back to the Bible Canada is pleased to present In All Things God's Providence. In this 190-page text, Dr. John teaches the providence of God. His book traces the thread of God's constant engagement with creation. Rather than a dry doctrine, Dr. John demonstrates how God's providence is the hope, comfort, and confidence for us all. So for this month only, we wanna make In All Things available at an exclusive feature price of only $5. Or if you prefer eBooks, you'll be able to download the digital copy for free at backtothebible.ca. To purchase your copy today, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.
1: Abigail was about to confront David, but she would do so not stridently or with an air of moral superiority. She would come in humility. But she would come to him and explain to him that he could never act as a private individual, but he had to act within the role as Israel's future king. David was forgetting this. His role was not to take vengeance. His role was to inherit the promises of God and to act accordingly. And you and I, as we read this account, must also apply this to our own lives. If we are to lead lives of significance, we're going to have to learn to respond to most of the difficult situations we face with an attitude that is in concert with the calling that we have received. Our lives are not our own. We are representatives of Christ. If you step back and think about it, you might conclude that the very same thing that I've concluded— Isn't it amazing how often God intervenes into our lives and keeps us from foolishness and sins and tragic mistakes? God is so much greater than our plans. Praise God. And just as David is rounding the corner, telling his men, God do so to the enemies of David and more so, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belongs to Nabal. In fact, if you read that portion in the Hebrew, David is being crude. If I leave so much as one who urinates against the wall, he says, he's angry, he's disrespectful, and he's crude, and he's intending to be brutal. This is David at his worst. And at just that moment, he meets a caravan filled with supplies for his men and a beautiful, wise woman named Abigail. She hurries down from her donkey and comes toward David, falling down at his feet. In the culture in which she lived, acting independently from her husband in providing supplies to a man her husband loathed, this would have been thought of as scandalous to say the least. Indeed, she's risking her safety with David, and she is certainly risking her safety when she gets home. But notice the wisdom in which she engages David. First, incredibly, she takes responsibility for the mess they're all in. She begins with the words, and I'm reading from verse 24. On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. But how could she be responsible for this refusal to supply David's army? And she explains, I know what a worthless man my husband is, and and that he is prone to doing the very kind of thing that he's just done. If I had been watchful, I would have showed up to listen to your men as they made a request of him. And then, in spite of his incredibly rude behavior, I could have done what I always do. I clean up his ugliness behind the scenes because I wasn't watching this thing as happened. I'm the one who's responsible, and I've come here to make matters right. Wow, that must have stopped David at his tracks. Now comes her second comment, and this is the one that has to do with God. Abigail wants David to see that God is involved in this. I'm reading from verse 26. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving by your own hand, Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Let me try to rephrase those words. She's telling David that it's no accident that the two of them have just met before David got into Nabal's camp. God, even right now, is intervening, she's saying. This is no chance encounter on the road to battle. This encounter was sovereignly arranged by God, who is coming to David to intervene and to stop him. You know, of all the things she tells him, this is the most daring thing. God has sent her to make sure that David does not sin. And as we'll see, David, a man after God's own heart, sees this to be true. And for us, we need to see what David saw. There are no chance encounters. And if we could only see that God is always at work in our lives. You know, at times we may look back at a conversation and rightly conclude, wasn't God in that? But Abigail has one more thing to communicate to David. She lets David know that God will protect David's life and that God will avenge himself on David's enemies. But she's leading to a more significant point, and I'm, I'm reading from verses 30 to 31. And when the Lord had done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause for my lord taking vengeance himself and this is her point she's not just there to beg for her household she is there to beg for david's future do you want to come to the throne with a knowledge of significant sins or will you come to the throne as a man who is known as having submitted himself to the will of god and this is our question as well isn't it far more important than having mounted a throne is the question of whether we have done right whether we have ruined the lives of others in our attempt to forge ahead, or whether we have left vengeance in the hands of God. David recognizes that Abigail is right and that she is God's instrument to speak to him. And so in verses 32 to 33, it says, And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, who have kept me this day from blood guilt. And so David takes the supplies and goes back to the place where his camp is. And that evening, Nabal is very drunk, and so Abigail leaves him alone. This is not the time to inform him of what she's done. But in the morning, when he is sober, she explains to him what she's done. Now, Nabal could have reacted in several ways. He could have realized that he was but a a hair's breadth away from death and have thanked his wife for her wisdom and, and her discretion. But as we already know, he's rude, crude, and he's a fool. And the text simply says his heart died. I suppose in our contemporary world, we might say that he had a stroke resulting in a coma so that 10 days later, he simply died. He got so angry, so upset, he actually had a stroke. No doubt his anger and his elevated blood pressure burst an artery. But the Bible says the explanation of all of this was God. Verse 38 says, the Lord struck Nabal. Now, some of us might wonder about the words from Romans 12 when we began. There we noted that we are not to take revenge, but to leave it to the Lord. We might wonder, why doesn't that happen that way today? You know, kind of like Ananias and Sapphira falling dead before the Lord the minute they lie to the congregation. Why are some evil despots, you know, for instance, like Idi Amin who destroyed the once Pearl of Africa, his own nation of Uganda, and then turned it into a horrible killing field, killing Christian leaders by the score and decimating Christchurch, why was he allowed to live out his exile in peace and in a mansion in the nation of Saudi Arabia? But here we misunderstand. God sometimes acts in justice immediately in order that we might understand that his justice always wins in the end. There's an old saying that says God's wheels of justice may appear to turn ever so slowly, but they grind ever so fine. Nothing escapes his hand. And all of this might seem to have ended so well, but we're left with one more portion of the story that modern readers often struggle with. David marries Abigail, the widow of Nabal, and all seems well enough except for verses 43 and 44. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. We know that Saul had given Michal, his daughter, who was also David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laesh, who was from Galim. This multiple-wife business just strikes us in the wrong way. Now, three things should be remembered. First, Michal was now married to someone else, so she's no longer David's wife. Second, because Ahinoam is mentioned before Abigail, it's assumed that David was already married to her before he married Abigail. And thirdly, it might be possible to view the marriage of Abigail as a kind of liverite marriage in which David became her kinsman-redeemer. So after the death of her husband, when she might have been left without any resources, David did for her what he had promised her in an earlier conversation, that he would become her protector in her life. Now, that's not to justify multiple marriage, but it's only to understand the situation in the cultural context of the day. Because she had played a major role in his life, he would not desert her in the hour of her greatest trial. But all of that leads us back to the major point of the story. It's not our job to control all of those who do evil. Vengeance is left to the Lord. He will repay. And on that basis, we are left with the joy of acting righteously, forgiving our enemies, knowing that God works all things out for His glory. We will all stand before Him in the end. In the end, His justice and His truth will reign.
0: John, a long time ago, I learned this thing called the three-second pause, which in essence gave me time when I was going to say something that I thought might be controversial to rethink what I was about to say or how I was about to act. And, you know, I think God does the same thing. Is this not what he's doing? He's, he puts people in our place sometimes to help us, to correct us. You know, I think that's,
1: that's great wisdom, uh, Ben, a three-second pause. You know, I, I, I wish I'd heard about that and I'd put that right into this message. It, it really is a fine piece of counsel. But when we don't use a three-second pause, or when we might have done something that would have destroyed a relationship or changed our own future, isn't it amazing how many times God will put someone in our way or some circumstance in our way that blocks our pathway from doing that which is foolish? And in that, we see that God loves us and is wiser than we have wisdom for ourselves. I, I think there's that lesson to be learned in this passage as well.
0: David is learning to trust God in some very specific ways in the midst of the trials he faces. I think that while we may be tempted to focus on the people in this story, whether it's David or Abigail or Nabal, we in fact realize that God is the primary character here. He places specific individuals in David's life to point him in the right direction. And he does the same for us too. So be encouraged and take some time to reflect on whether you're trusting God's faithfulness, even the most difficult of circumstances. Join us again tomorrow for our continued series, David, the man who would be king. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. I simply can't enter into the new year without expressing the entire ministry team's gratitude and awe for your exceptional display of generosity towards the Back to the Bible Canada year-end campaign. Your gifts, no matter the size, your prayers and encouragement, thank you for your partnership. It's critical in making this ministry possible. And it does so much to sustain and supply thousands of people with accessible, trustworthy Bible teaching. We understand that these are difficult financial times for many, which only makes the depth of our gratitude that much more profound. I've said it before, but I cannot express it enough that this ministry would not exist without your partnership. So again, thank you and Happy New Year. On behalf of the whole team here at Back to the Bible Canada, we pray that this year you will be blessed with a lasting joy and peace that only comes from knowing and placing your trust our gracious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.